Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Foundation doing the Finding Genius podcast. I have Celine Gounder. She's the CEO and president and founder of Just Human Productions, a nonprofit multimedia organization. She's also the host and producer of American Diagnosis, a podcast on health and social justice, and Epidemic, a podcast about uh, SARS-CoV-2, a.k.a. COVID-19. So we want to talk today about uh, HIV and infectious diseases. So Celine, thanks for coming. It's great to be here. Well, tell me about how did you get interested in disease in the first place, you know, HIV and, and uh, COVID? Like, what, what's your background and what led you to this? Yeah, it's really um, an interest that started, I guess, in college. I was really interested in sort of this intersection of science in service of other people and in particular of more vulnerable populations. And if you look at who tends to be affected by infectious diseases in particular, It's very much more vulnerable populations that, you know, depending on the country, may be a little bit different. You know, HIV in the United States very much continues to hit hard the LGBT community, also very much people of color, whereas in other countries, you know, you may see slightly different patterns. But just this idea of working with marginalized people where I could have the most impact is really what led me to gravitate to infectious disease. HIV, how unevenly is the effect on different populations and and why? Well, if you think about risk factors for HIV, so it's transmitted through either sex or or blood. And 
what the mechanisms are for protecting yourself. Uh, do you have access to those? And, you know, do you have access to, to testing and treatment? And as a result of sort of a confluence of all of those in the United States, you do see a concentration among more marginalized communities. So that, as I mentioned, LGBT, people of color, people who use injection drugs and other drugs, uh, people who find themselves homeless. For a whole host of reasons, people find themselves in circumstances where they're not able to uh, protect themselves as effectively. You know, maybe you're in a state that does not have easy access to syringe exchange programs. Maybe you don't have access to HIV testing and so aren't able to assess, you know, what your risk is, what your partner's risks might be. You may not have access to pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is the drug that we give to prevent infection with HIV. And so it's really kind of like COVID, a test for uh, how, how socially, economically vulnerable you are and what your access to health looks like. Well, from what I understand, HIV, again, it comes from sex, but also from, I guess, perhaps uh, sharing needles, IV drug use. Uh, are there any other methods that is transmitted? Yeah, and then also mother-to-child transmission. This is essentially uh, non-existent in the United States because we do routinely test women for HIV during pregnancy, among a whole host of other infections. But in other countries, we still do see transmission from, from mother to baby, either during the pregnancy or during the period of breastfeeding. And so, you know, it's, it's really a testament in the United States to the fact that we do test. And if somebody's positive, uh, we offer treatment so that there is no transmission to the baby. But not everybody has access to that in the rest of the world. How has HIV changed over the past you know, 30 years or so, or maybe even the last 10 years? Is there much of a change or... Is it pretty stable? Like what's happening with it? There are definitely some really promising um, developments on the horizon. So in the past several years, really the past decade or so, we've seen the rise, uh, a rise in the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis. That's when you give HIV medication to prevent infection, kind of like you would take birth control. You know, you know, you're going to have sex with some kind of frequency. uh, So you take a birth control pill every day. Similarly with PrEP, again, pre-exposure prophylaxis, you take a pill and there's different dosing regimens. Sometimes it's every day, sometimes depending on somebody's lifestyle, it might not be as frequently as that. But that has been highly effective in terms of preventing new transmission. So that's really um, been an, an amazing development. We also now have injectable HIV medications that are long lasting kind of like uh, Depo-Provera, if I can steal another analogy from birth control, which is a long-lasting injectable form of birth control. And so similarly, we can now use these injectable medications for HIV um, in, in the in the form of, of a preventative. And so for some people, you know, that's going to be a lot easier to manage than taking a pill. Um, and so we really have more options for people. It gives them more flexibility and more control over their life, which is really great. So what's the focus of the uh, Just Human Productions, the, the media company? What are you trying to advance? Yeah, so we're a nonprofit 
media company. We are focused on the intersection of health and equity. So how does that play out with any number of major public health challenges? And that could be everything from mental health to opioid overdoses to gun violence. And most recently, we've obviously been um, not surprisingly focused on, on the COVID pandemic. And so understanding what are the drivers of health disparity, I think sometimes, you know, especially I think in this country, we tend to ascribe poor health to personal decisions, individual responsibility, but it's not that straightforward. The best predictor of somebody's health in their in this country is their zip code. And obviously your zip code is not a question of personal responsibility. It's a question of where you happen to be born and then where maybe um, you know your job took you to or something like that. It's not, and so for something like that to really be the best predictor of your health, I think is really telling in that our health is, a combination of uh, social, it's, you know, who are we around and what household did we grow up? What are some of the things that we learned from that environment? You know, I think COVID is a great example of this, where a lot of people's behaviors have very much to do with what their social circle does. So if it's okay to wear a mask in your social circle, you'll do it. In fact, you might do it because everybody else is doing it. And in other social circles, it's not okay. And so even if you might want to, to protect yourself, you choose not to, because that's what the sort of social pressure is. And so I think understanding that things like whether we eat healthy or how we exercise, if we do, is not just about ourselves, but is again, you know, part of a a larger social context is a part of it. And then I think, you know, also understanding, you know, that, that other factors, the air we breathe, the quality of the water we drink, all of these other things are not really questions of personal responsibility, but they very much affect all of our health. So when you say zip code affects someone's health, and you're talking about right the societal parts, the friends, family, maybe school, et cetera, job, that kind of thing. But why else would zip code be a predictor of someone's health? Is it, you know, what I guess maybe they live in a food desert and they can't get any fresh foods and they just have to eat it like, you know, fast food joints. Is that why zip code can affect people's health? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. That's certainly, you know, one one example. You know, another is if you look at the lower Mississippi River Valley, it's known as Cancer Alley. Uh, and that's because you have a lot of petrochemical companies in that area, which unfortunately have led to pollution of the air and, and water and land. You go to Appalachia and you look at rates of lung disease. And, you know, I mean, there's very good data on this on a county by county basis. You can see, you know, what are the major drivers of of different health problems, where do you have the highest mortality? And in Appalachia, you see very, very high rates of of lung disease, and that's related to coal mining and other kinds of mining in that area. You know, so when, when we talk about health being related to zip code, 
Some of it is social. Some of it is the environment in which people live. Oh, any other factors that are a surprise even to you when you learned about them? I think I was surprised. I've been surprised learning about the impacts of mining on public lands. I think one, I just did not realize how private companies could go into publicly owned lands and mine and then basically leave the waste uh, for taxpayers to clean up. And in many cases, it never gets cleaned up. And then people really do suffer the health consequences and where some of this happens the most is near tribal lands uh, where you have a lot of indigenous people living. And yeah, I mean, I, I just was surprised and that's probably really naive and ignorant of me, but the idea that you could go in and just take something out of land we all own and not have any responsibility really to clean up. I, I just found shocking. Yeah, that's terrible. I spoke to a, a lady that's studying the chemical exposure of hairdressers and nail salon owners or nail salon users, uh, sorry, nail salon technicians, what I mean. She found that, I guess, in their blood, they would have 10 to 100 times the amount of uh, you know chemicals based on what they're using, the environment they're in. So I would guess that would be a huge determinant on health. I don't know if you've ever looked at that. Oh, for sure. Occupation. I mean, you know, another great example drawing on sort of recent past year is people working in meat packing or food processing. You know, when you work in certain professions, you are going to have higher levels of risk, whether it's to an infectious disease or to a toxin. And whether that is regulated or not, whether those regulations are enforced or not, um, is really variable. And especially if you're in a profession where, let's say, it's a lot of people who are from, you know, south of the border who are immigrants, a lot of times people will be afraid to report health and safety issues on the job. And so these problems just continue to fester and people continue to suffer as a result. So what what can be done in your estimation? What can people do? Well, you know, I, I think there's definitely the power of the purse where if you demand of places that you're you're buying, whether it's food or clothing or whatever it is, that they are transparent with their supply chains, that they are transparent about the working conditions, wherever that good is being created. You know, I I think that's a really important way, just even without regulation, that people can have a big impact. You know, when you go to your grocery store, ask, you know, about the company that provided you your tomato, you know, um, are, are they treating their farm workers fairly? And I think what makes it so hard, right, is how do you get that information? And so there are organizations increasingly out there that are really trying to provide for that, you know, that information gap so that people do know that they're buying ethically, so to speak. One such program is called the Fair Food Program, which is a a, uh, worker-operated program where they really work with some of these subcontracting labor organizations in the fields that really make sure that workers are paid fairly, that they're given safe uh, working conditions. So, you know, those are the kinds of things to be on the lookout for. So, okay, well, what do you, what have you discovered or what do you think is going to be the best way for, you know, to reduce the health inequalities? Like, how do you approach it? How do you attack it? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, I think that starts with jobs because I think fundamentally what everybody wants is they want a job that is a good paying job that is a safe job that they can support themselves and their family with work from that job. And I think that's a pretty 
basic human want and need. Tied to that should be decent health care for everyone. And so I think that's a very basic place to start. You know, I do think it was really unfortunate that there was not support for the $15 federal minimum wage, at least with this go round of, of legislation. You know, but if you think about $15 an hour for somebody who works full time, that's barely over $30,000 a year. And to be expecting people to be working in what are in some cases very risky, demanding jobs, physically demanding jobs, for that little and to expect them to be able to have a healthy life and support a family, it's just not a reasonable expectation. And so I would say, you know, that's that's a pretty obvious one that we should be raising the minimum wage at least to that level. So, you know, I think that's that's where you start. And then I think the other piece is we need to be focused not just on health care, but public health, which means that instead of waiting until somebody's sick, they end up um, in the ER needing to be hospitalized for something, that you look at what's driving some of some of the these health conditions. So you mentioned food deserts, you know, I mean, that's a great example. You know, what are the what are the environmental drivers, you know, could we be cleaning up air and water in certain places to, to reduce the risk of whether it's lung disease or cancer. You know, I think really addressing these bigger systemic drivers of of poor health would be a much better use of our money. Frankly, we would accomplish a lot more. You get better bang for your buck and people would be healthier. Okay. Well, in addition to raising minimum wage, what else do you think could be done? And I mean, what about, again, people that are working in nail salons or hair places or you know, if they have to wear masks eight hours a day on their shift and clean constantly with chemicals and breathe all this garbage in, I mean, what can be done? Yeah, I mean, this is where um, agencies like OSHA come in. So this is Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They they regulate these kinds of things. And as you can imagine, depending on the administration, um, the toughness of those regulations waxes and wanes. But I think you know, part of the challenge is you do need to keep up with the times. For example, a nail salon, the chemicals you might use today are not necessarily the chemicals that were used 20, 30 years ago. And so you do need to update these things to, to keep up and make sure that you're continuing to keep people safe. And then again, you also have to enforce them. And that requires real money because you need inspectors to go to places of work to make sure that those guidelines are are being followed. So it's not super sexy stuff, but that's the stuff that keeps people safe and healthy. Well, I mean, so is it OSHA that's really in control of all this or, you know, who else oversees it and who helps to protect people or not protect? Well, I, I think there is also a component of whether it's unions or other worker organizing of keeping, uh, holding employers accountable. We certainly have seen some of that with nail salons in New York City, where I live, for example, you know, really workers, one, educating customers saying, you know, these are some of the issues with our working conditions, uh, getting media coverage for that. And I think just that educational effort, once customers are kind of aware, they know to ask, hey, are you guys using these chemicals? Or, hey, you know, what are what are your practices with distributing tips or, you know, those kinds of things, you know, I think that's an important piece of it. And then holding the employer accountable also just more, more directly through legal means, uh, whether that's, you know, through, through a union or, or through local government, I think is another important thing that helps to curb these kinds of offenses. Okay. Uh, Are there any campaigns that you've done that you feel like you've had a big effect, a big positive effect? And what did you do? 
that kind of campaign has not really been my space. I mean, I certainly know people who've done that and um, have covered that, but that's not, you know, I, I wouldn't, I would not call myself an activist. I would say I'm more of a doctor who, who's also a journalist. Again, what are you, what have you found is the best method to bring awareness to these issues? I know obviously this podcast is one of them, but you know, what are the things have you done that you were like, wow, that did have a big impact? Well, I think reaching out to your local elected officials, developing a relationship with them, I think can be really impactful because it, once you become sort of a trusted advisor to somebody, they will come back to you again and again with different questions. And you can really have a big influence on the conversation. Not everybody is going to be an expert on something like you know, what I'm expert in and, and won't necessarily have sort of that kind of avenue. But I think we all are experts on our lives, our neighborhoods. And I think really feeding in to the, the local government process is important. I think people sometimes don't realize how much gets decided uh, at the local level, not at the federal level. You know, it may not make TV news and the front page of the New York Times, but that stuff is really where you can make a big impact on the health of your community. What other, um, I don't know, for people listening, if they feel like they they have to do something either about their own situation or their local community, any suggestions on how they would get started? You know, how do they, I, I guess they, you know, they would have a cause in mind, but do you have any advice for people like that on what they can do to help get their voices heard? Well, if you notice a problem, so first of all, get educated, learn as much as you can about the problem, you know, who, who the who, what, where, when, and why um, on a local level, as well as learning the science, you know, who are the people who, who are the stakeholders around this issue, who currently has the most power on the issue, and how can you sort of become part of that mix of, of stakeholders? And that might be through who you elect, it might be you organizing a campaign, whether that's maybe a petition campaign, or maybe it's a protest or a boycott or, you know, whatever it is, depending on the context, maybe it's you yourself running for office. And so I think really with many of these kinds of issues, when you're talking about bigger sort of social level issues, these are not things where you can say, okay, I'm just going to change this behavior in my personal life. And that's going to solve that. You know, it'd be like saying, I am going to stop driving and climate change will be fixed. You know, that's, that's not going to fix it. Right. So, you know, I think when you're dealing with such huge problems, you need to figure out ways to work with other people to address the issue. What are your thoughts going forward? Uh, do you think activism is going to become more difficult? You know, with media, I mean, I mean, it's just more and more present in our lives, various forms of media. So, you know, as a nonprofit media company, from that perspective, I don't know, what do you think is going to be effective going forward and not effective? Like, how are things changing and getting out messages? I think the media landscape's getting more fragmented, where, you know, there was a time, say, in the, you know, 1950s and 60s, where you had three major networks uh, on television, ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, basically, you had the evening news on those three. And if you could get a message out through there, you were you pretty much done. You know, you generally had one big newspaper per town, maybe two. Many of those have since folded. And People also used to listen to the radio a lot. I think they still do, but that's also gotten to be a much more fragmented space where there are just so many radio stations between AM, FM, satellite, and now podcasts. And so because there are just so many choices, whether it's you know television or, or radio podcasts or all of the online uh, publications, it's really hard if you want to reach everyone to do so through one platform Uh, one publication. 
So I think you really have to focus on who is the audience you want to reach and with what message and target yourself that way. What do you think is going to happen in the next few years in terms of HIV, which is probably more of a, a steady state condition versus COVID, which is you know changing constantly? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, in terms of HIV, you know, it's HIV is a far more complicated infection, far more complicated virus than SARS-CoV-2. And so developing a vaccine, I mean, this is something that scientists have been working on since the 1980s for vaccine, is just taking so much longer because it is so much more complicated. You know, I would really love to see one in my lifetime. Tony Fauci, who's the director of the National Institutes of Health of um, Allergy and Infectious Diseases, I'm sure he's a household name to just about everybody in the U.S. now, Dr. Fauci has said he does not want to step down from his job until there is a, an HIV vaccine. And, you know, he's now 80. So hopefully, hopefully we, we, um, we get there pretty soon here. But, um, you know, I, I would love to see, to see us get there before too long, because it really has been a, a struggle. Okay. And then in terms of uh, so HIV, right? Well, he, he promised a vaccine like 30 years ago and still no sign. With COVID, what what are your thoughts on, you know, 2021, what's going to happen? And then 2022, maybe a little bit of future forecasting. Well, we're in the middle of, um, you know, getting everyone vaccinated. We're probably at what, about 10% of adults have been fully vaccinated now, which is tremendous progress already. And the supply of vaccines is about to open up dramatically over April and May. By the end of May, there should be enough COVID vaccine to vaccinate every adult in the U.S. who wants to be vaccinated. And so I do think the summer is going to be really looking better and better compared to what last year looked like. I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. I think the one wrench in all of that is the rise of these new mutant various uh, variant strains. And the challenge with those is, um, in particular, the one that has arisen out of South Africa, the vaccines are still effective against it, but it is, they are less effective. And so there's this trend that's concerning, and it's really a signal for people like me to worry about it, not for necessarily the average person, but that we need to be worried that we need to be developing second generation vaccines in the event that these mutants do continue uh, to change. So that's the one sort of black cloud on the horizon. But, you know, I think big picture, we're in so much better of a place than we were a year ago. And um, we just need to stick it out with the masking and the social distancing for another really just couple months here while we wait for people to get vaccinated. And then and then we can get back to life. Well, I've seen uh, multiple news outlets saying, oh, even if you get vaccinated, you still need to wear the masks forever and all that. So you think that's really going to happen or are they just going to move on to the next thing? and say, oh, no, it's not good enough. <laughs> well, in fact, the CDC came out today with its recommendations. And the recommendations are that if you are fully vaccinated and you want to socialize, um, you know, gather with other people who are fully vaccinated, you can do so without a mask, you can do so indoors. Where it gets a bit stickier is if it's a mixed group of people who are vaccinated and some who are not. And that really depends on the people who are not, are they at high risk for complications? So let's say you have grandparents who are vaccinated. One of the adult children has severe diabetes and they have uh, kids of their own. Is it safe for grandparents to be socializing with the family without masks? Probably not because that would put the adult children at risk there. 
you know, but that's really going to be more of a case by case situation where you're going to have to evaluate are the, you know, people who are not vaccinated at risk for ending up in the hospital. If they are, you, you do still have to be careful. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Celine, what's the best way? Uh, I mean, again, you're running multiple podcasts, you have your nonprofit media organization. What do you want listeners to focus on? Or what, what resources do you have for them to find out more about your work? Yeah, so our website is justhumanproductions.org. We are also on Twitter at Epidemic Podcast and American DXFM. So that's for uh, the Epidemic Podcast and for the American Diagnosis Podcast. Okay, well, very good. Celine, thank you for coming on the podcast and, and I appreciate it. Sure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.